0: let's go to 1 John chapter 3. We started uh, last Sunday morning a series entitled He Came and looking for five Sunday mornings at the exact reasons of why Jesus came. And I warned you last week that this would not be fluffy. It's not going to be, this season you hear you know joy, peace, things like that. And certainly that's part of the reason why Jesus came, but when you look at it biblically, it is, it is deep, it is rich, it is powerful when you look at the Bible reasons why Jesus came, and I think it's good for us to consider. Last week we looked at Luke 4 at a religious crowd who just misunderstood the reason why Jesus came, and he set them straight as to why he was coming, and primarily that was gospel-centered, Uh, Today, we're going to look at 1 John 3, where John gives us yet another reason on why Jesus came. Before we read the verses, verses 1 through 10, I do want to lay a small bit of context. So understand the writing of 1 John, it's twofold. First is John is seeking to address some heresies or false teaching that has been spread throughout the first century church, and he will uh, do some of that in this passage. But there is a subplot to the book where John is seeking to give what I would call birthmarks of a believer. He's seeking to give, here are some ways, some litmus tests that you can employ in your life to know, am I saved or not? Am I a Christian or not? Am I I a child of God or not? He gives us several ways that we can do this, and we're going to look at one of those ways here in 1 John chapter 3 uh, today. And you come to the end of John, and he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That a big reason for him writing his book is here's how you can know if you're saved or not. I'll tell you up front this morning, this is, if you're saved this morning, this will be a source of inspiration and worship for you. If you are not saved and you don't know the Lord, it will be a challenge to you this morning. And I'm excited to look at it. So let's start with 1 John 3. We'll read the first ten verses of this this, uh, passage. He says in verse number one, behold. Verse number four, "'Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he, Jesus, is righteous.'" He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. And don't miss this. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth his brother. This morning, I am absolutely elated to preach to you this topic. He came that he might destroy the works of the devil. I'll Hopefully, here today. Years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend about who our favorite preachers were. And we were talking about not just who they were, but why that was and why we had favorite preachers. And I don't have an all time favorite, I have favorites for different categories or styles of preaching personally. But he said that uh, his favorite preachers, and I'll never forget this, he said there were preachers who made change. And I looked at him and said, what do you mean they make change? He said they take $100 truths and they break them down into $1 and 5 and $10 bills and they give it to you in kind of a small digestible format so that you can understand these profound passages of Scripture in an easy way. And I, by no stretch of the imagination, am a great preacher. I have so far to go and oftentimes will listen or watch myself back or read the transcript of a message and cringe. And so that is not me. But today I do desire to do this. I do desire to make change. I do desire to give you a passage that is pretty complex and rich and just chock full of content and to give it to you in small, digestible pieces so that you can understand clearly what John is saying here in the first 10 verses of 1 John chapter 3. And there are, there's many things that he's saying. We could spend several months in these 10 verses. But primarily, I think that there are three truths that John is really driving home inside of these first 10 verses that I want us to see, and I want us to see how it relates to Jesus' coming and him destroying the works of the devil. So he's going to begin this passage, and he's going to talk first about this our identification in regard to the Son. John is going to identify Christians with sons of God and the family of God. And he starts in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. John starts this passage in the superlative. He starts this passage bursting with praise and just says, look, what manner of love is this, that we are able to be called the sons of God, that this is is shock and awe to John, this is amazement to John, this word that is translated into what manner, it's used seven times in the New Testament and it always implies astonishment. It always implies this source of amazement when you look at this. And he is amazed at the love that the Father hath bestowed upon us. We in our world get to experience and get get to know different types of love. We get to feel from a child. We get to know a father's love that is this protecting, providing, asking almost nothing in return sort of love. We get to know the love of our mother, which is this At sometimes fierce love and at sometimes very tender love. And you know what I'm talking about in regards to your mom. We get to become parents and experience the love that a child expresses to a parent that is so charming and tender and wonderful. And there's just something different about that kid's love. We get to know sibling love that goes deep and blood is thicker than water and relates us to our siblings. We get to know the love of a friend. And the Bible is clear that a love of a friend can go beyond even the love of a brother or a sister and deeper than a sibling love. We get to know neighborly love, which is sometimes dutiful to us and that we're just supposed to love our neighbors, and that's not always easy. We even sometimes get to know love of pets. I don't personally have a pet that I love. My wife and I are not pet people. We love animals, but we're not pet people. But many in the room, literally, you know a love towards your cat or dog or goat or deer or whatever animal you have in western Pennsylvania. So you, your chickens, you have love for them. But John says the love of God, it's almost, it's almost foreign. It's, it's behold, what manner is this? Like this is from another planet. This is supernatural. This is something that I just can't understand and wrap my head around the magnitude of God's love for us, that we should be called the sons of God, that we are his children, that we are God's kids, that we're supernaturally placed into his family. And how do we, how do we plumb those depths? How do we scale those heights? How do, we, how do we get the circumference of that? We can't. Just this praise of behold what manner of love this is, that we should be called the sons of God. I read, I, I take it back, I didn't read. I listened to the audio of the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis uh, a couple years ago. And if you don't know the Screw Tape Letters, they were originally written as these kind of weekly uh, periodicals in a, a newspaper that were eventually placed and compiled into a book. And the Screw Tape Letters are fictional. But there are these letters that are written from a junior devil named Wormwood to a senior devil kind of up the ranks named Screwtape. And it's in regards to Wormwood's what he calls patient. It's in regard to this human that he is responsible to safely lead into hell. And it's a, it's a fascinating read to get maybe possibly a glimpse into how spiritual battles work in, in our own lives. But there's a portion in the book where Screwtape writes to Wormwood and he kind of lets the cat out of the bag and he tells Wormwood, this is not going to be easy. And specifically, this is not going to be easy because the enemy, and the enemy is his term for God. The enemy has a love for humans. And I'll, I'll quote what Screwtape writes to Wormwood in this book. He says that God, the enemy, has a curious fantasy of making all these little disgusting human vermin into sons. He says that God, and in, in, in the book, that's fictional. I don't know if the devils actually have an astonishment when it comes to God making us sons, but I do know this. John did, and we should, have an astonishment when it comes to the fact that God would love us enough to put us into his family and to make us sons and daughters in Christ and to identify us with Jesus Christ, the Son, that this is a source of worship and praise and magnification of Jesus. And John says in the, in the latter part of that verse, therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not, that we understand with our identity that Jesus said in John 15 very clearly, the world is going to hate you and persecute you and be against you. And just know that because you're, because you're part of the family, you're part of the team, that that is coming. John continues this thought in verse number 2. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. John says, look, here, it's clearly laid out. We are the sons of God. We're in the family. We know that in our world, there are really only three ways you can get into someone's family. You can get into family by life, where you're just born a son or a daughter of someone else. You can get into family by law, where you're legally adopted into the family. Or you can get into the family by love where you marry into the family. And in Jesus Christ and in the Father, we get to experience all three. By life, we're born by the Spirit into the family. By law, we are adopted, whereby we may cry, Abba, Father. And by love, we are the bridegroom of Christ, that we are the sons of God. And we marvel on that, and we look at that. And, and John clearly says here, we don't know fully what all this means, but we do know this. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. The Bible says this in several different passages of Scripture. First Corinthians fi- or 13, the very end of it, is pretty profound where it says, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, and we will be able to be known, even as he is known, one day, that there is coming a day where Jesus will be revealed and we will get to be like him. W. Alexander records that... On the mission field, there were natives that they were translating this passage of Scripture into their language. And when they came to this verse and they began to write it in their own tongue and understand it, that they laid down their pens and cried, No, it's too much. Let us kiss his feet. That they understood what this verse was saying. That that one day we will get to experience likeness of Christ, that we will be like him. Now some have tried to extrapolate this further than what the Bible says and say that we're going to be like little clones of Jesus and we'll all look exactly the same and have the same eye color and the same hair length and that sort of stuff, which is crazy. We don't know fully what this means, but we do know this. We know that it means, according to 1 Corinthians, that this corruptible will put on incorruption and this mortal will put on immortality. That what we long for, that we will no longer be corruptible, we will be holy, we will be righteous as Jesus is righteous, that sin will be removed from our life. We also know that death will be gone forever when we are made like Christ, when we get to experience our glorified bodies. Beyond that, we know that it doesn't mean that we're exactly like Christ in the sense that we don't become God. We don't become all-powerful. We don't become all-knowing as Jesus is, as God is, but we know that we will be like him, and this is a source of praise, and this is a source of comfort for, for John to write and say that this is, this is a big deal. We're the sons of God, and we have an identification with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we will be like him. and It leads him to verse number three, and it gives him this practical implication. Verse number three, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. Even as he, referring back to Jesus, even as Jesus is pure. John says, look, this is not just a source of praise. There's a moral component to this. There's an ethical implication of this. That if we have this hope, and hope in the Bible is not a maybe. Hope is a rock-ribbed assurance based on the promises of God. When we talk about Jesus and his second coming, that's the blessed hope. It's not the blessed maybe. It's the blessed assurance. It's that he is coming, and John says if you have this hope in you, if you are a Christian, if you're a son of God, if you're in the family, then this should produce a moral component that we should purify ourselves even as he is pure that we should become more and more like him, that we should be conformed into the image of Christ. And that's probably the most practical implication of this entire passage of Scripture for us today, is that if we are Christians, if we are in the family, we should be more and more like him, and we should grow, and we should become more pure, and we should seek to become more like Jesus in our lives. John says very clearly here that Jesus is pure. John said in chapter 2, verse 29, right before 3.1, John said, we know that he is righteous, that Jesus is righteous, Jesus is pure, and we should purify ourselves even as he is pure. John is going to take this this beautiful thought, this glorious thought that we're the children of God and what this means for us, that we should be more like him, and now he's going to play it out practically for us and drive home the most important part and the primary point that John's trying to communicate in this passage of Scripture. Between verses 4 and 9, John is going to lay out this in regard to the Christian. He's going to say this, we have an incompatibility in regard to sin. That yes, we have this identification in regard to the Son, but now there's this incompatibility in regard to a life of sin and John is going to define sort of what this means. What does it mean to purify yourself even as he is pure? What does it mean that we should be like him? He's going to now unfold this for us and he says in verse number four, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law for sin is, what is sin? The transgression of the law, the breaking of the law. John starts and says, let me just be very clear that sin is breaking of the law. That this is a universal truth. There are no exceptions to this. That Mark it down. When you sin, you're not sinning accidentally. You're not just so happening, whoops, I just sinned and didn't mean to. It is you are rebelling against God. You are breaking the law. You are doing something that's clearly laid out, black and white, not a gray area, black and white. You should not be doing this, and you are. Sin is not on moral sin is not something that is vague sin is a transgression of the law and the law is designed to declare us guilty the law is designed to show us where we fall short and we do a really really good job as humans of wanting to excuse all that away of wanting to ignore that of wanting to justify our sin We do a great job of blame shifting and of pointing fingers and of not wanting to take responsibility and not putting the onus on ourselves. That yes, I just rebelled and I did that sin because I wanted to and I'm a rebellious little creature. We do a great job of wanting to see that it's someone else's fault and it wasn't really or it was an accident. We are, modern psychology has provided us with this repertoire of mental gymnastics that we can perform to rid ourselves of the guilt of sin and put the blame on somebody else. And John says very clearly, no, there's right and there's wrong. Sin is transgressing the law. It's breaking the law. It's clear And John defines for us what this is, and then he says this based on that assumption. Verse number five, and ye know that he, Jesus, was manifested. Why? To take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Implicit to this writing is John's assumption that you know this. You you already know, Christian. You already know that Jesus died, that Jesus was manifest, that he came to take away these sins to take away our transgressing of the law, that now sin and the law do not reign over us any longer and they don't have power over us any longer. And part of the implication of Christ's coming is this effective removal of sins, that he is taking them out of the way. And John maintains all through this passage in chapter 229 that Jesus is righteous, then he says that Jesus is pure, and now he's saying Jesus is sinless that Jesus is righteous and pure and sinless, and he is laying this clearly out, that Jesus came to take away those sins, and now he's going to move into what does this mean for us? What does this, what bearing does this have on our lives? And he's going to say clearly that a Christian's life is incompatible with a life of sin. Look in verse number six. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth... Hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, John is going to make several statements like this. Between this and verse number nine, he's just going to say this statement every which way he can to make sure that he's abundantly clear in what he's saying. And let me be clear from the get go on what John is saying and not saying. John is not saying that a Christian or a child of God will never sin, period. That you will live a life of perfection. And that you will never know sin. What John is saying is that a Christian will not live a life. It is impossible, it is incompatible for a Christian to live a life that is marked and characterized by sin. That living a life of habitual, unbroken chains and patterns of sin is incompatible with a Christian and is not possible. You say, well how do you know that John is not saying that and he is saying that? This is why context in regards to the Bible is extremely important. You can take a lot of portions of Scripture and just rip them out and take one verse and make it say whatever you want to if you ignore the context. So here is why I'm not just making that up. Here is why John is saying that. I'm going to give you a contextual reason and also a relatively technical reason. So when you're looking at a context of Scripture, this is just good to know in general. When you want to build the context, you take your verse of Scripture and you start to with the verses that are closest to it. And then you spread your gaze a little further with the verses that are closest to that. And then you go a little further. You don't build context on 1 John from Exodus right away. You start with context in 1 John with the verses that are in 1 John chapter 3. And then you look at the verses that are in all of 1 John. And then you look at maybe John's other writings, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John. And then you would spread your gaze to the entire Bible. So contextually, let's understand what John says in chapter 3 as well as the book of 1 John because that will help us. So chapter 3, verse 3, we just talked about this. John says, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So you that know and have this rock-ripped assurance that you're the sons of God, you should be purifying yourself, indicating that there is this process that happens, that we're not just clearly perfect and done. Now, furthermore, if we back up and go to 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, verses that many of us know and quote, John says this. Look Maybe it's a turn of the page, 1 John 1, verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he says, look, there are these times where you're going to have to confess your sins and praise God. He's faithful and he's just that he does cleanse us, that he does forgive us, that he does come back and help us and mend our broken hearts. He says in chapter two, verse one, he says a very similar statement, my little children, These things write I unto you that ye sin not. So look, I'm writing to you so that you would be righteous, that you wouldn't sin. But then he says this, and if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. That Jesus Christ, the Lamb that came to take away the sins of the world, that John is John's not schizophrenic. He's not writing in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, chapter 3, verses 3, look, you may sin and you need to confess that sin. Try not to sin, but if you do, know that you have an advocate. Look, you need to purify yourself. And then just completely changing his mind and saying, look, you'll never sin. That's not what John's saying. So contextually, we can know that when we look at the book of 1 John. A technical reason would be, I I would just put it like this, John's verb usage. The verb usage, and, and it's tougher to tell in the English than it is in the Greek, but John's verb here of sinning depicts this linear, progressive, continual sin. So, what John is saying in verse number six and seven, eight and nine, what he is saying is that a Christian is incompatible with a life of habitual sin. A Christian's life will not, cannot, it's an impossibility to be characterized by unbroken patterns of sin that happen time and time and time again that we, just, we never seem to get out of, nor do we want to get out of. If I could illustrate this in a clear modern way, the Nile River is the longest river uh, on earth. It's 4,160 miles. The Nile River is not the only river that flows south to north. It would be the only river of consequence that flows south from north, but it's a bit of a rarity. And that the river flows south to north. It does not flow uphill. We know that's impossible. But it does flow, directionally speaking, south to north. And we look at that and we're kind of in all of that. And it's different. It's unique. But there are points in the river's course that if you look at the river flowing from south to north, that there are points where it will bend west. And it will continue to bend west. And it will actually, instead of flowing north, will begin to flow south. But shortly thereafter, if you follow the river, it will turn back. And it will begin to flow north once again. And when you get the bird's eye view of the river, we say the Nile River flows south to north. Does that mean at every single point in the river it's always flowing north? No, not necessarily. But as a whole, the river is flowing south to north. What John is saying simply is that a Christian's life is going to flow south to north. You are going to be saved as a sinner. And Jesus came and died for those sins, and your life should be characterized by flowing towards him, by living a life that becomes more pure, by living a life that is more righteous. And there are moments where we bend west and we even start to bend south. And there are moments where we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us those. And then we turn back north. But a Christian's life is characterized by flowing towards the sun. It is characterized by living a life of righteousness. And John is crystal clear on this, and he says in the back part of this verse, basically the opposite way of stating what he just said in the first part, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. He is saying that if you live a life characterized by continual habitual sin, then know that you have not seen him or, and you have not known him. Know that you probably don't have, not probably, you just don't have salvation, You don't know the son. You're not in the family. This is a birthmark of a believer that you should have this, you should have this desire. You should have this when you sin that the Holy Spirit puts you back on course and wrestles your heart and convicts you that that is inside of the life of a Christian. He continues this thought in verse number seven and says this, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous." This sounds almost Aristotelian. There's a lot of righteous, righteousness, righteous inside of this verse. What John is saying is, it says, look, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone trick you when it comes to this. If you are righteous, if you are, like, literally, in the righteousness of Christ, if you are saved, and Romans tells us that we possess the righteousness of Christ if we are saved. If you are righteous, you will live a life of righteousness just as Jesus was and is righteous. John is saying that's, that's elemental to salvation, that if you are in Christ, then he was perfect and righteous and pure and holy, then your life will be characterized by this as well. And that's how you can know if someone is in Christ or not in Christ. Then he comes to verse number eight, which should be a magnanimous source of praise for us. He says the same thing in a different way. He says, he that committed sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. Look, just like he that's of the Lord and sons of God, they are righteous and they will, they will be characterized by, by a life and pattern of living after the Lord, those that are characterized by a life of sin are of the devil. And it's the devil that sinned from the beginning. That sin is this sort of exotic import into our lives and into our nature that we can recognize who the offspring of the devil are by this. And then he says this phrase, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested. So why did Jesus come? Why did he put on flesh? Why was he manifested? That he might destroy the works of the devil. This is not to add to the Scripture because we're not supposed to do that. We know that. But I would add to that a... Amen, praise the Lord, glory to God, he came that he might destroy the works of the devil. What we looked at last week when Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, this is why I'm come, that he was coming for gospel ministry, to give sight to the blind, to give uh, freedom to the captives, to set people at liberty, that this is what Jesus not just came to do, but he did it. He accomplished it. He destroyed the works of the devil, which is sin, and looses us from the chains of sin, from the captivity that we one at one point in time knew. And I do not for a second underestimate our adversary, the devil, that walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I do not underestimate him at all, but on the flip side of that coin, I do not underestimate our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who came to destroy the works of the devil and destroy the works of the devil, he did. That Jesus makes it possible for us to live a life of righteousness. That what John is talking about is an impossibility outside of a life and identity in Christ, outside of becoming the Son of God, that this is something that is given to us by the Son of God that we now can be freed from sin. We can be freed from the works of the devil because Jesus destroyed them. John is, this entire passage is meant to burst with praise and to give us a source of worship as we look at why Jesus came. This is very similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is this very apologetic portion of Scripture, where he talks about the resurrection and why the resurrection and what it means for us. He gets to the very end of that passage of Scripture, and he says this, almost taunting the devil and death and sin. He says this, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, that in Jesus and His destroying of the works of the devil, we get to experience the victory, and we do not worry about death. We do not worry about the grave because we understand that we will be like Him, that we will enjoy eternity with Him, both in an immortal sense, but also in an incorruptible sense. And Paul says that this is where is the where is the sting of death, which is sin. Where is the strength of sin, which is the law? Where is it? It's not there because Jesus gave us the victory. He destroyed the works of the devil. The author of Hebrews says something extremely similar in chapter 2. He says, For as much then, children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, talking about Jesus, also himself, likewise took part of the same. That just as we are flesh and blood, Jesus became and took on flesh and blood, literally, bodily. Then he says this He became part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. That Jesus' is coming, his death, his burial and resurrection is so profound and such a war that he destroyed the works of the devil. We just sang, and Andy encouraged us to think about what we were singing in O Little Town of Bethlehem. We just sang these words, O Holy Child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. The prayer of a sinner repentant that I pray that you would come, cast out my sin and enter in. And that's what Jesus does. When you're placed into the family of God, when you experience salvation, there is a real life casting out of sin, a destroying of the works of the devil, destroying of sin to give you a life that is characterized by righteousness. It's characteristic based off of this verse and other verses in the Bible. It's characteristic of the devil to sin and it's characteristic of Jesus to save. And saving is what Jesus does when he destroyed the works of the devil. Paul continues, and he's, he's not done beating this drum. He's going to give it one more go. And he says in verse number 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Paul says essentially a restatement of what he has already said in verse number 6, that a believer cannot, literally cannot, impossibility, impractical, cannot continue in an unbroken pattern of sin, that uh, being born of God is characterized by a life of righteousness. And he is not suggesting that a Christian is free from sin altogether and that we never have those moments of sin. But he is saying clearly that our salvation should involve a radical change moving us from darkness into light, giving us new desires and a new life. And the old man has passed away, the new man is here, that we have a desire and a heart based on the Holy Spirit of God and a birth in him to experience righteousness and to live a life that's characterized by attempting to become pure even as he also is pure. John is clearly giving us this birthmark of here is what a Christian is and is not. This is how you can know if you are saved or if, if you, and we shouldn't enter into judgmental mode, but there is a measure of knowing if someone else is saved based off these verses that John is very clear that our, our Christianity is incompatible with a life of continual sin. And based off of this, John is going to give us information in regard to salvation. Verse number 10, he's going to bring this argument to a close And he's going to say that all this tells you and gives you a litmus test for who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. He says in verse number 10, In this the children of God are manifest. So not just Jesus was manifest to us, but in this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. And the children of, or whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. John says, look, it's not that complicated. Based off of this, you can know who's a child of God and who's not. Who's a child of the devil and who is not. Based off of this, it's made manifest to us. It's made clear to us. Who is a child of God or a child of the devil? That this this is a litmus test. This is an acid test. This is a way for us to know, am I saved or am I not saved? This is why when John gets to the end of his writing, he can say, these things wrote I unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. That you can look at it and say, yes, I relate Yes, I get that I have a desire for righteousness. I have a desire to please the Lord. When I sin, it messes with me. I don't like it. The Holy Spirit convicts me. He tries to move me back into righteousness that I know that. I feel that. I experience that. Therefore, I can know that I'm saved. Therefore, I can know that I'm a child of God because that is my life. And if I don't feel that, if I don't have that inclination, if I can just sin and really not care and just enjoy it and not regret it, then I can know that I'm not a child of God. I can know that I'm a child of the devil. John is saying it doesn't matter what date you have written in your Bible. It doesn't matter what prayers you prayed so X number of years ago. It doesn't matter what your mom or your dad or your aunt or your uncle or grandma told you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter if they have it recorded on some cell phone somewhere. If this is not characteristic of you and your Christian walk, then know who's a child of God and who's a child of the devil. Know if you're saved or not based on the life of righteousness that we should enter into. And if we are saved, it is only logical and it is only sensible to think that this would happen, that salvation would be dramatic, that salvation would be something that is supernatural, to think that we are being saved from our sins and Jesus is destroying the works of the devil, we should be able to know that. We should be able to feel that and experience that and have that on a day-to-day basis. And John is not, in this verse, in this passage of Scripture, he's not looking for an event in the past. John is not looking for security and salvation and asking others to have security in their salvation based on some previous event. He's asking them to look at their present. He's asking them to look at their life currently and, and what they've been doing for the last week and month and year or two years. That's what John is doing, and John is clearly saying that if we do not have a belief that behaves, we do not have a salvation that saves. That is the crux of John's crystal clear argument. If you do not have a belief that behaves, you do not have a salvation that saves. And the point of this is to provoke people to become saved. Not just to live and throw your hands up and, and waffle and to say, oh, I can never be saved, but to actually become the sons of God, to experience Jesus destroying the works of the devil inside of your own life. And this is one of the acid tests that John gives for salvation. If you walk through that passage of Scripture and you start to look at verse 6, 7, 8, and 9, in regards to the works of the devil, John lays out what exactly this is. And John says in verses 6 and 7 that if you're sinning, you're continual in sin, or that if you are the child of the devil, then you have not seen God, that you're in spiritual blindness. He says in verse number 8 that if you uh, commit sin, you're of the devil, that you're, if you have this life of habitual, continual sin, if you are not saved, then you are in spiritual bondage. He furthermore says you are the devil's offspring. John says, and it's that precisely that Jesus came to destroy. Jesus came to give you spiritual sight. Jesus came to give us, to loose us from our spiritual bondage. Jesus came to move us from the family of the devil and adopt us into his family. Adopt us. We're born again into the family. We're married into the family. That We experience that. That this is the reason Jesus came to destroy those works of the devil. Just a few months ago, our teenagers went to youth conference. And I did not go to youth conference, but after youth conference, they came back and they had a a testimony service. And my favorite testimony the entire night was one of our teenagers got up and said, in in a nutshell, I'm paraphrasing what he said. He got up and said, I've been told that I've saved or thought that I was saved. I've been in church, but I look at my life and I don't have a desire for righteousness. I don't want to read my Bible I don't want to pray, I don't want to go to church, but I have desires that are completely opposite. And based off of this, I'm going to get saved. And to that, I amen wholeheartedly. That's exactly what John says. That if your life is not characterized by a sort of flowing south to north, yes, there's moments where we bend and we go back south, but if your life is not characterized by that, then you need to check your salvation. You need to ask yourself the very real question, am I in the family of God? Am I a son of God? Because it only makes sense that if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is righteous and pure and we are to be like him and we are also sons of God and we identify with him, that our life would be characterized by the same. And John says, look, this is why Jesus came. And we praise Jesus for this and we praise the Lord for this, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. That is something that we should never get over, that Jesus came to loose us of our sin, to set us free, to make us spiritually whole, to move us into the family of God. This is a source of praise for John. This is a source of praise for Paul. And it should be in our lives today that our eyes are opened, our chains are fallen off, we're adopted into the family, all because he came to destroy the works of the devil. Father, I love you and praise you for this passage of Scripture that is so so rich, but yet yeah, it's so simple. It's so simple when we look at your life and who you are and what you've done for us and the awe that it should inspire and what it should produce in our lives as believers. Jesus.